man, I joke about growing up in the BOBC a lot, which is the big old Baptist church, and I hope you don't misinterpret my joking about that. I was talking to somebody about that this week, that I'm incredibly grateful for the heritage that I received as a result of being in the BOBC growing up. And, and one of the things is like hymns. Like, man, I love, I love that song. Like, I don't know, there's probably five that I can listen to and be like, I can't sing this today. Like, I can't do it. And that's one of them. I, man, I love that song. Um, there's such richness in, in a lot of those. And there, it's not that it's lacking in modern worship or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not on that soapbox. But, man, there's just some hymns that, man, they get my goat. Um, if you even understand what I mean by that. Uh, we're, we're super grateful to be here today. Um, it is one of those fun Sundays to which we had a lot of things to do and take care of, and when people start texting at 5 o'clock in the morning, be like, I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to make it. When we're a heavily volunteer-driven um, church, I'm like, oh man, here we go, here we go. It's going to be a fun one. But uh, we, we, we're here, and we're grateful. Thanks for everybody that brought food and carbohydrates and all those things, because um, you can't have breakfast without carbs, apparently, and so thanks for that. And my wife made scones, so, you know, it's, it's all good. Uh, we are uh, in the book of Mark today. We're going to be in Mark 14, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the process for today. Um, we're going to read a small, small chunk. We're going to jump ahead a little bit, and then we're going to jump ahead a little bit uh, to kind of tell a whole story that starts in this passage. Uh, we've been in Mark. If you haven't been here with us, we've been in Mark for about 17 months, um, and we're, we're, we can see the finish line, and that's fine. It's going to wrap up a little bit before Easter, and then we're going to revisit some of these same texts just written from one of the other perspectives of one of the gospel writers, um, and it's, it's been fun. Um, today we're looking at a passage that uh, is, is a familiar one to me. It may be familiar to you, and uh, I, I just, there's so much in this particular story that starts here, jumps ahead, then jumps ahead, that resonates with me as someone who's followed Jesus for a long time and looks forward to following Jesus for a longer time but also realizes that I have baggage that affects the way that I follow Jesus. Um, and I think baggage is a very popular word, but what I mean by that is there are things from my past, whether I understood them correctly or incorrectly, that affect the very way that I pursue Jesus. Uh, some of those good, some of those bad, uh, some of those need to be unlearned, some of those need to be jettisoned uh, from me, and, and this addresses some of those that need to be jettisoned from me. So maybe they will with you too. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. We'll be in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 26. Um, we're going to continue the passion narrative and, and push it forward just a little bit. So, um, by the way, if I haven't met you, I'm Matthew. Um, I do see some faces that I'm not super familiar with today. Glad you're here. I hope you got to partake of some carbs and coffee beforehand. So, uh, let's, let's pray together. God, we love you. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that through him we get to, to celebrate, we get to live, uh, we get to look forward with great anticipation the things that you have in store for us. Um, and Father, we get to look back and thank you that some of those things no longer matter. Um, God, thank you for all that is wrapped up in the truth of the gospel for us. Uh, today, as we look at your word, I pray that we do it well. I pray that we don't add anything or take anything away. Uh, but God, it's your truth that speaks louder than our doubt, louder than our fears. Um, Father, even louder than our presuppositions. I pray that your truth is primary. Thank you for making us a family. Thank you for allowing us to live this life together, pursue you together, and experience you together. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start in 14, verse 26, and to kind of catch you up, like we said, we're kind of in the midst of this passion narrative. This would probably take place, like if we're looking at timeline-wise, this would be on Thursday. Um, Friday, I'm not giving away something I hope that you don't know, but on Friday, Jesus would be crucified. Uh, on Sunday, we celebrate triumphantly that he rises on the third day. 
Um, and so from here on, things start to move very, very fast. If we read them just the way that they appear, because there's so much that occurs, we're like, man, this had to be weeks or, or longer. But it, a lot of what takes place in the, the rest of this book, I mean, it's, it's 24 to 72 hours. In the next 24 hours, a lot happens very, very quickly, uh, very, um, man, very painfully, but very victoriously at the same time. And, and so a lot of this is beginning that. They are leaving the place, the last place in which they were able, they being Jesus and his disciples, just to sit. Uh, from here on out, uh, there's some kneeling, there's some prostrate laying and praying, but for the rest of it, it's going to be very mobile, very quick, um, and to, to be honest, very, very tragic. Um, but that tragedy is for our victory. And so hard to hold those things at the same time, but it's the truth. And so we wrapped up last week in which uh, Jesus celebrated the old Passover with his disciples, but the way that we framed it, he also started the new Passover and began to celebrate that then, talking about what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. He had that after their meal, after he had washed their feet, um, or somewhere in there, the washing of the feet, but either way, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you or will be broken for you. This is my blood, which is going to be spilled out for you on your behalf take, partake of it, make it part of you, and live with me. And we talked about what that Passover represented for them, what it represented from them from then on, and what it represents for us, and that Jesus is better. He's the better Passover. Uh, he's the eternal Passover. It's not just for freedom from circumstantial uh, deal, but for eternal, for us. And the thing that we're free from is sin and the effects of sin. And so Jesus is better. He's the new Passover for us. And so they leave that, and this is where we find them today. They're on the tail end of that, and they, they kind of do what would be uh, a little over a two-mile hike. And somewhere in between the destination and them leaving is where we find this beginning today. So starting chapter 14, verse 26, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, that's the way they concluded it, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, a couple things. Here's how he begins. You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So in this moment, they're leaving the comfort of the upper room. They're leaving the celebration of the Passover, and Jesus leads them to the Mount of Olives. And in just a bit, we're going to see the prayer in the garden, uh, not today, but next Sunday, um, some times in which some things are confessed, some things are said with deep theological implications. But today, they're on a small road trip. Uh, they're on a steady climb up the Mount of Olives, not a huge mountain, not even quite like Paris Mountain, but about 2.2, you know, 2.5 miles from Jerusalem where they were going up the Mount of Olives, uh, going to the garden. But on their way, Jesus tells them a few things. The first thing that he does is he's quoting Zechariah, a prophecy from Zechariah 13, and he says, uh, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. And so basically for them, he's quoting this prophecy, but he's telling them, he's preparing them beforehand. Uh, and he's told them in no uncertain terms, even though they were still quite uncertain about it, he was like, uh, I, the shepherd, I'm about to be struck, and it's going to be by God himself, my father, and as a result, you will all scatter. So he's, he's telling them quickly, the first of which, uh, you will fall away. But then he tells them something else 
Uh, he says, you'll all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. But then he says this, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. The second thing that he declares to them is not only will I be struck, but I will be raised. I will raise from the striking. I will come back. And see, even until now, there's been a sev- several things in which he has spoken, and he's spoken pretty clearly about a lot of things that he would be taken, that he would be handed over into the hands of sinners. He would be uh, crucified. He hasn't used those exact words yet, but he would be sacrificed. But then, uh, now in no unveiled terms, he says, but I will be raised up. I will be raised up. That's the second thing. The third thing, he says, I will go before you to Galilee. Basically, meet me there. Uh, it's pretty important and interesting that he says, I will go to Galilee, because for them, that's where a lot of this started. When he called those first disciples, they were on the Sea of Galilee at the time, and that was that phrase that we talk about a lot, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. That's where they were at the time. They were just blue-collar fishermen, uneducated, not men of uh, education, but just men of labor, men of wages, and, and they were those men. And in that place, at that time, in that circumstances, when he called them out, Come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And he says, when I'm raised, I'm going to go back there. I'll go there before you. I'll beat you there. Basically, come and find me. And so he tells them all of this, and even though in their mind right now, they're probably not still completely clear as to what he's talking about, because that's okay, because, you know, we, we talk about that, and even when we say that, we're like, ooh, I don't know if I believe that. Well, put yourself in their shoes or their sandals for just a minute. Like, if you were the disciples, and kind of like the Passover very much last week, they had celebrated their entire life, the Passover, the same way, and then Jesus does something new, they would have still been a little bit unsure as to what he was doing. Like, what do you mean your, your bread is, I mean, your body is broken for me and I'm going to eat it. Your blood is spilled for me. I need to drink it. Jewish law says we can't eat that or drink that. That's taboo. So he's speaking metaphorically. They're still probably a little bit on the outside of understanding. And even now where he says, look, uh, the shepherd, he's about to be struck. You being the sheep, you're about to scatter. I will be raised and I will meet you in Galilee. They're probably still a bit like, I'm not exactly sure what you mean. Now, they would fully understand and fully comprehend in a few days because life and events would teach them what he was talking about. But in the moment, they were probably a bit perplexed. But what they were hearing is like uh, their inability to follow. They were hearing that, that they would have an inability to stick with him to follow. And so Peter, being Peter, he kind of speaks up. In verse 29, Peter says to him, even though they all fall away, all of these, I will not. I will not. Peter wasn't speaking out of turn. Peter was speaking from his heart. Peter frequently did that. He spoke before thinking very often. That's the reason I resonate with him very frequently. Just ask my wife. And he was. He was just speaking what he felt. If all fall away, Jesus, I I won't. Not going to happen. Not me. Don't know about the other 11, one of which is going to betray you. Don't even know who that is yet, but not me. Not going to fall away. Not me. And then Jesus points out to him in verse 30, and it says, And Jesus said to him a little more directly, he's like, Truly I tell you, Peter... Simon Barjona, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Deny me three times. But then he said emphatically, with great passion, with great dedication, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, there's been a lot of speculation as to whether or not Peter meant what he said, whether he was sincere. I'll tell you this in no uncertain terms. I feel he was completely and utterly, totally, 100% sincere in this moment. 
sincere. Whether he thought that Jesus was a revolutionary and he was about to lead a war and a rebellion in military terms, or whether he partially understood that Jesus was about to be the lamb that they could not uh, possibly afford or not possibly understand, either way, I think Peter was entirely sincere in this moment. And the reason that I point to that uh, is, the, is the same reason that I'm about to ask you the same question uh, or a question that I'm about to ask you. The reason I point to that is can you, can I look back at a place, a time, a conjecture in our life in which we can identify with Peter's passion and a vehement profession that I will not do X, Y, or Z? Like has there been a time in your life in which you have been confronted with either your sinful nature, your inability to do right, and before God, with all of your sincerity, you say, I'll never do that again, or I won't do that. It's not going to happen. You saw the tragedy of your behavior. You saw the, the error of your ways. You saw the goodness of God in however way that that happened. And in that moment, you said, I will never do that again. I think a very physical, and I'm looking around for tender ears, I think we're safe. I think a very physical representation of that is those who have struggled with, with drinking and alcohol. And you hear repeated stories of people. I remember hanging my head over a toilet, throwing my guts up, and just crying out to God, God, I will never do this again. Now, in that moment, probably the, the impetus was you feel like you're going to die, and you probably weren't thinking about the fact that Scripture declares drinking to that point is sinful, and it's against God's desire for you. But either way, you declared, I will never, ever do this again. Maybe things of sexual nature have caused us to say a very similar thing. Maybe in the moment of being confronted with what we just did was against God's desire for us in the place that sex should play within our marriages and in our marriages only. Maybe it was misplaced at one point. We recognize that. And we find ourselves in the midst of guilt, in the midst of pain, saying, God, I will never, ever do that again. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe it's the thing that you struggle with the most, whatever that X, Y, or Z may be, and you fight it, and you fight it, and you fight it, and you break, and you fall, and you just tell God, I will never, I will never, even if I must die, do that again. I think if we're all honest as Christ followers, of those of us who have been bought by Jesus, who have been brought into the family when we didn't deserve it, at some point, a large majority of us have said something very similar with the same passion, the same intent as Peter. Peter, even, I mean, Jesus, even if they all fall away, I, I won't. Deny you? No way. Not me. Even if I must die, I will not. Have you been there? Were you sincere? I've been there. I was entirely sincere. Confronted with my guilt, confronted with my shame, entirely sincere. So Peter's told a couple things, along with the other disciples. Um, I'm going to be struck. You're all going to scatter. All, that Greek word for all, means the exact same thing as our English word for all. It means every one of you. And, and Peter, even though you'd deny it and say, not a chance. Peter, I tell you that not only will you scatter, but tonight, tonight, you're going to be asked, do you know me? Three times. And all three times, you're going to say no. Have we been there? So shortly after this, like I said, a lot of things move, move very, very quickly. 
Um, Jesus is Jesus goes and he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll talk about that next week. He's arrested. He's betrayed. Uh, he's put on this crazy, ridiculous mock trial where people come, people come and lie to present testimony against him so that he might be put to death. The beatings begin. All of those things. And yes, the disciples, they, they kind of scatter. We see Peter kind of following at a distance, observing, watching, seeing what's going on. If we flip over just a little bit uh, to Mark 14, verse 66... Uh, we find uh, Jesus below in a courtyard. Uh, he's in a courtyard below Pilate's, either his residence or his, his legal functioning place. Um, and Jesus has been following from a distance. I mean, Peter's been following from a distance, watching what has occurred, listening to what has occurred, and he finds himself warming himself by a fire. Verse 66, verse 66 it says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, uh, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. It happened. In spite of his sincerity, in spite of his maybe even a bit of righteous indignation, despite uh, his desire to say, no matter what, I won't fall away. No matter what, even if I have to die with you, I'll not do as you say, Jesus. I will not deny you. It will not happen. I do believe he was entirely sincere. I do believe he completely meant it. But in the moment, in the moment, he faltered. He fell. In the moment, the fear of him ending up exactly where Jesus was overwhelmed his ability to maintain his sincerity. In the moment, Peter sinned. Peter sinned. You say, well, how did he sin? Well, number one, I think if we go back and we look at the 10, he lied. Do you know him? Nope. Don't know him. Not me. Do you know him? Mm -mm. Nope. Not me. You're a Galilean. I can hear it in the way that you speak. Nope. Not even from there. I'm from Chicago. Not me. At the root, he lied. We could start there. Second, he, he put himself before God. He had created an idol of himself. Like, we could probably go through almost all the Ten Commandments right here, and he pretty much broke them all, every one of them. Like, if we wanted to, I could make a stretch, and I could do a little eisegesis, which is wrong, and anytime somebody does that, we should say, ooh, bad, eisegesis is reading into Scripture, exegesis reading out of Scripture, one good, one bad. But either way, I could probably do that. Not going to, just... Take me at my word, take Scripture at his word. Peter, he faltered. He didn't just screw up. He didn't just mess up. No, Peter sinned. Peter sinned in this moment three times, even though he passionately declared just, just moments ago that no matter what, I don't care what everybody else does, Jesus, I will not deny you, even if I must die. In this moment, he was more afraid of death than he was at keeping his word. Now, you could, you could hear something that I don't say 
in the next little bit, and I want to I wanna go ahead and say what I'm not saying, if that makes sense. I'm not in any way, shape, form, or fashion saying that sin is okay. You will not hear me say that. You will not hear me uh, lean towards that. You will not hear me uh, hint at that. You will not hear me say that sin is okay. In our community groups and in, in fellowship with discipleship, relational discipleship, one of the things that we say is no rescuing. Uh, when we're in those, those small groups, our community groups, we, we talk about no fixing, no rescuing. Rescuing would be like downplaying someone's sin by saying, hey, you know what? It, it's okay. We all do that. We've all done that. Not a big deal. We're not doing that today. Okay? This is what we're acknowledging. Peter, in this moment, before Jesus was handed over to the high priest, he said, I will never deny you. I will never scatter. It will not happen. And I believe he meant it. But when that moment came, he did. He did. He scattered, said he wouldn't. He denied him, said he wouldn't. He sinned. He sinned. This is not rescuing. This is not fixing. This is acknowledging. I would say that every one of us have been in the same exact place. At some point, at some time. It may have been this past week. It may have been this morning when you're trying to get out of the house with your kids. Because I know what those mornings look like, or at least I used to. Now I leave the house way before my kids do, and my wife's a trooper, and she gets them out of the house uh, dressed, fully clothed, fully ready every single morning. Today we had two extra kids that weren't even ours, and that's fine. We celebrate that. Um, she does that, and I don't, I don't get to do that anymore. Could have been this morning, but I can assure you, most of us, if not all, have been in the same exact place. Doesn't make it okay doesn't make it acceptable. Just because the masses do it does not make sin not sin. Sin is still sin. Sin is against God's desire, against God's design. It's not, he want, not what he wants for us, and it still must be dealt with. But here's the issue. The reason that I say that we've all been there is because, like I asked you just a minute ago, the question, can you identify with Peter's passion? Can you identify with him saying, in that moment, I will not, I will never, even if I must die? And I think a large majority of you, if you thought about it for a minute, you're like, yes, I most certainly can. I remember, I remember vividly the last time that I said, God, I will never, and then I remember this playing out. Maybe I wasn't in a courtyard, maybe I wasn't warming myself by a fire, but I remember what I told God I wasn't going to do, and I remember when I did it. I remember, and I remember the pain inside of me because I remember what I told Jesus. I remember what I confessed, and I remember that I said I would never do it again, but I remember the feeling of when I did. And I remember all of those feelings. I remember all of that shame. I remember all of that pain. I remember all of that. Can you identify with that? Because I bet you can. Because I know I can. And I'm no better than you. I'm no worse than you. But in a sense, I am you. Formed from the same dust, made from the same cloth, and alienated by the exact same sin. In a sense, I am you. And I've felt it, and I bet that you have too. And if you haven't, awesome but I bet you have. So do you remember that time, that place, that circumstance that was preceded by the passionate, determined declaration, but then you fail? I ask all of that because I ask these questions. In that moment, what do we do then? How do we feel and where do we go? Those three questions, they're incredibly vital. What do we do now? How do we feel? And where do we go? By where do we go, I mean, where do you find your value? Where do you find your truth? Where do you find your identity? 
Where do you go? Where do you find your value? Where do you find your truth? Where do you find your identity? Because in that moment, there's a lot of voices. And I'm not, not hearing voices in my head. I'm not saying that. But at the same time, there's a lot of voices, a lot of places. Because I think the commonplace is we feel completely incapable. We feel completely devalued. We feel completely unworthy to even confess what we just did to Jesus. Because we told him we wouldn't. We told him we would not. Even if I must die with you, I will not. Maybe those weren't our exact words, but I'd say the jest was the same. I won't do it again. I know you hate this thing that I struggle with so much, and I won't do it again. I feel so bad in this moment. I'm confessing to you. I'm seeking repentance. Uh, I won't do it again. And then we do. What do we do? How do we feel? Where do we go? The lies that we believe is that you're not worthy to approach God anymore. That's the lie we believe. Because I told God I wouldn't, and I transgressed on my word. I transgressed against him. I have sinned. Uh, the lie that we believe is I'm, I'm not good enough to talk to Jesus. And let me be honest, you're not. I'm not. But Jesus is entirely worthy. And as a result of the gospel that we lay our life in the basket of and trust to hold us and keep us, Jesus is entirely worthy. And Jesus goes before us, just like he was going before them to Galilee, not to stretch it, is the same way he goes before us to God. So here's the first thing that we need to hear. For those of us in Christ Jesus, we need to hear this. You need to understand it. I need to hear it and repeat it to myself frequently. I am not my sin. You are not your sin. Whatever that sin may be, whatever that thing that you told God you would never do again, and you did, you are not that if you were in Christ Jesus. You're not that. And if you want to hear that as a prophetic word over you, that is fine. I believe that Scripture does that, and it equips us to do that. You are not your sin. The thing that you battle, the thing that you fight, the thing that you lose to, you're not that. You're not that. As a matter of fact, you're something entirely new if you have been bought by the blood of Jesus, that Jesus uh, that, uh, that told those disciples just in the last scene, take of my body that's broken for you, drink of my blood that's spilled on your behalf. If we have part been partakers of that by grace through faith, uh, only through Jesus, you're not your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that uh, you, e, me, we, us, we're a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are not your sin. You are not your sin. No matter what lies you hear, no matter what you feel, no matter how bad and unworthy and shameful uh, you are perceiving life and your actions to be, you're not your sin. Because of Jesus, you're new. Scripture even goes so far to call us pre-Jesus pre sinners and after Jesus saints. It doesn't require three miracles. No, it just requires just Jesus. We are called saints. We're called saints because now we've been sainted by the blood of Jesus and we're brought into the family, not on our value, but on the value of Jesus's. We're not sinners anymore. Do we commit sin? Yes, we deal with that. We'll talk about that. But our identity does not rest in our sin. It rests only in Jesus. You are not your sin. And in that moment, it's, this is just incredibly hard and foreign to accept because it doesn't make sense. Nothing else in this world is going to line up with this type of logic or this type of process. Because in life, to be honest, if you fail at something, you're a failure. If you screw up at something, you're a screw up. 
But here, in light of Jesus and the gospel, if I sin, I'm not a sinner, I'm a saint. Did I commit sin? Yes, but my identity is not wrapped up in what I just did. My identity is only, only, solely wrapped up in Jesus through the gospel. That's it. And so the shame that we feel, the guilt that we feel, many times it's self-imposed or it's demonic presence that's coming into us to convince us you're not worthy, you're not able, you're incapable, uh, you don't deserve the grace of Jesus, you haven't earned the grace of Jesus, you don't truly know God. If you did, you wouldn't have done this. Those are the sins that we hear. I mean, those are the lies that we hear. And very often, often those are the lies that we swallow because they make sense. They do. They make sense. But that's, so, that's the reason that so often uh, we state that the gospel, to be honest, it's crazy. It's insane. It's out of this world. It shouldn't happen. Based on me, based on you, absolutely. It shouldn't happen, but it's not based on us. It's based on God and his desire to make us right with him through his only son, Jesus, which that doesn't make sense either. And it's okay to admit that. It's okay to confess that. I think it makes it far more believable, lovable, and inescapable to know that it doesn't make sense. It's not the way that you or I would have done it. So in that moment, understand we are not our sin. In that moment, it's hard to accept. We feel like a failure, worthless, not useful, ashamed. Psalm 103, 10 through 13, one of my just mentors just sent this to me randomly this morning. And it wasn't even in my notes, but one of the guys, one of the pastors that I love that, that loves me in return and, and, and guides me, he sent this and so beautiful to even look back at the Old Testament and the way that God deals with our iniquity. He says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast, chesed love towards those who fear Him. The idea is covenant love there, which we'll talk about. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. says that God's agreement with us that is presented in the form of this new Passover, this new deal, this is looking forward, but also looking to the, the hesed, the covenant love that was even present here, says that God deals with us based on his agreement with us, not our transgressions against him. And his agreement with us is that Jesus' blood, by grace through faith, has covered all of our sins, past, present, and future. We are no longer held eternally accountable for my sin. That is the reason I can say that I am not my sin. You are not your sin. We are sainted through the blood and the body and the works and words of Jesus. And man, that's crazy. Peter, in this moment, probably felt quite the opposite completely devalued, completely broken. All of those things. In this moment, we can do two things. Two things. We can believe the moment, or we can believe in Jesus. When it, when it boils down to it, those are our only two options. We can believe the moment, or we can believe in Jesus. That's it. Now, granted, under those two things, there's a lot that goes into that, but we can believe in the moment and the circumstance and the things that we're hearing, or we can believe in Jesus. And this is one of those places where I say we have to choose. We have to choose to believe in Jesus more than the lies. Believe in what he's done, believe in what he said, believe in who he is, and believe in what he's done in us that only he could do more than the lies. 
I want to flip forward to John 21. Because I don't want to leave us hanging in this story. But also, before I get there, I do want to read the last line that we kind of skillfully omitted. It says, before the rooster crows twice, you you will deny me three times. And it says, he broke down and he wept. Peter broke down and he wept. We flash forward, again, not to give away some things, but Jesus was crucified. He did kick death in the teeth on the third day and walk out of that grave. <laughs> I mean, the story gets, it gets crazier and crazier, right? Like it's not normal, completely other than. I mean, this is, not, this, is, this is just not the way life should work. But it is the way that his life worked. He walked out of that grave, and then he begins to reveal himself to the disciples bit by bit over the next 40 days. And then uh, in chapter 21 of John, we find Jesus appearing to seven of the remaining disciples. I'm going to read through a few, and then we're going to talk about a couple. But starting chapter 21, verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus revealed himself to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Man, I like this guy. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out, got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you not have any fish, or do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now, things should start clicking right here. They really should. So remember, go back to Galilee where all this started. Peter's going back to fishing, who he was before Jesus. And this is the way that he met Jesus too. Oh, you're not catching anything? Hey, put your net out. Do, do it a little differently. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, being John, therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord! Yep. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself in the sea. He put on his coat, and he jumped in the water. Again, Peter The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, and the fit with fish laid out on it, not the ones that they had caught, but just some that Jesus had had, or made, whatever. Again, this is Jesus. He kicked death in the teeth. He can make fish at the snap of a finger if he wants to, too. And then Jesus said, bring some of the fish that you have caught, maybe for you, because I've got mine. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net in shore full of large fish, 153 of them. So interesting that they count. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Another miracle. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast, fish for breakfast. That's another miracle. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread, gave it to them, and so would the fish. Man, it sounds a lot like something else. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And here's where I want us to get in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus and Peter, conversation time. In all the revealings between Jesus and Peter, it hadn't come up the fact that Jesus said, you're going to do this, and he said, no, I won't. And then he did. It hadn't come up that we see. They had finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, he said, Simon, Barjona, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? He's not asking more than the fish. He's asking more than the other seven, the six that are there with him. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I'm not going to skip verse 18, even though it's a hard one. He says, truly, truly, this time two trulies. I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify, he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said, follow me. I love what's not said here as much as I love what is said. I love what's not said as much as I love what's it, what is said here. I concluded that last passage right before we went here of he went out and he wept bitterly because I think that Peter really did see what he did. And he knew that he had just sinned against Jesus, God would skin on, by denying him three times, even though he swore that he wouldn't. And I think in between there and here, I think a repentant heart was present. I think knowing what he had done, he'd either confess that in his spirit and, and turn from that and declare it again, very passionately, very tangibly, I will not do that again. And Jesus in this moment, I believe that this is when Jesus, face to face, lets Peter know, number one, I knew what you did, I still love you, and I still have something for you to do, which confronts all the lies that we believe. When we sin, when we go against the thing that we said that we didn't want to do, I think we have to understand that God still loves you. God still loves me. As a matter of fact, he knew exactly what Peter was going to do in this place. That's the way that he was able to tell him, you're going to deny me three times. You're going to scatter. He knew what he was going to do before he did it, and he still loved him then. He definitely loves him after, especially if there's a repentant heart present like that. I mean, it's just, that's Jesus and his economy. It doesn't make sense. And I think it's funny that, not funny, I think it's amazing that he did. He denied Jesus three times, but then Jesus asked him three questions. And what he didn't say, he didn't say why. He didn't say, what were you thinking? And he didn't say, how could you? Those weren't his three questions. He just asked, do you love me? As a matter of fact, in the Greek, it gets a little more confusing. We have three words for love in the Greek. We have agape, unconditional God kind of love. We have eros, which is like the, the marriage, very passionate kind of love. And we have philos, which is like the brotherly love. And Jesus' words, in all honesty, the first two times he asked him, he's like, Peter, do you agape me? Peter's response was, I love you like a brother. I feel us you. Do you agape me? I, Jesus, you know that. I mean, it's almost like an emphasis thing that we put on. Do you love me? Well, Jesus, I, I love you. Do you love me? I, I love you. It's really interesting. The third time Jesus changes his words and he says, do you feel us me? Do you love me like a brother? And that's when Peter was agitated, a bit grieved. He's like, yes, Jesus, you know that I do. But in every time that he responded, do you love me? And, and no matter how we cut that, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Okay, then just go and do as you've been called. Do you love me? Yes, Jesus, you know that I love you. Go and do as you have been called. Do you love me? Jesus, you know all things. You know everything. Yes, you know that I love you. Go and do as you've been called. That other lie that we believe because of our sin, even the sin that we wanted to fight well before it happened, that Jesus knew that we were going to do, 
is that we're no longer worthy to be used by God. And in this moment, in this moment, Jesus is reminding Peter, Peter, you still have a job. You still have a role. You still have something to do in my kingdom. I'm not done with you yet just because you sinned. Sin is egregious. Sin is wrong. We deal with sin. 1 John 1, 9, again, we confess our sin. God is faithful enough to forgive us of our sin. We repent of that sin. We turn from that and choose Jesus instead. We deal with that sin. But Jesus still says, I'm not done with you. Still have things for you to do, places for you to go. It sounds like a kindergarten book. People for you to see, words for you to share, life for you to give because I've given it to you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do what I've called you to do. Do what I've called you to do. You, me, we, us, we're not our sin. We belong to Jesus. He desires to use us. The gospel declares that our sin does not change any of that. Hear me. The gospel declares that our sin does not change the fact that we are loved by God. He desires to use us and we belong to him. Our sin doesn't change that. We deal with it. We confess, we repent, then we believe in the gospel, and then we have to accept what Peter had to accept here, and we see proof of that in the book of Acts. We have to accept the restoration that only Jesus offers. Being brought back to usefulness, whether we were non-useful because of our feelings, whether we were non-useful because of discipline, whether we were non-useful for whatever it may be, the gospel also declares that we have to accept the restoration that only Jesus offers. On one hand, it sounds so simple. But on another hand, it is really hard. It's really hard. Some days it's easier to believe that I'm a failure and I'm not worth anything than it is to believe that I'm a saint and I'm worth the life of Jesus according to God and his desires. It doesn't make sense. But it doesn't change the validity of the statement nor the truth of what it represents. That he loves us, uh, we belong to him, and he desires to use us. I think that at least 26% of us today, I just made that number up, but it's probably 80% accurate. I believe that a large majority of us today need to trust in Jesus more. More than we hear about the effects of our sin more than we hear that we're not worth it, more than we hear uh, the shame that speaks so loud some days, we need to trust Jesus. Trust what he's done once and for all, for all of those who believe. Trust Jesus. So hard, so good, so beautiful. That's the gospel. That's it. God, we love you. Uh, I thank you for the hard words, the ones that go against my humanity and my ability to truly allow myself to be owned by you. I thank you that you're more than just valid, but God, your life itself. And you put that on display in the life, the works, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. I thank you that we're not our sin. 
I thank you that that is not our identity anymore for those of us who have been made new in Christ Jesus. God, I I pray for your spirit to speak loudly through your word, through your people, through just that still small voice that you offer to remind us that we've been bought with a price and there's nothing we can do to unbuy ourselves. You didn't pay for us for a day. You didn't pay for us for a week. You bought us for eternity because that's how valuable your sacrifice was. Your sufficiency does not run out when we falter. God, I pray that because of that, we are moved to repentance, we are moved to confession, and we're moved to accept your restoration that only comes through you. Let us fully lay claim to the power of the gospel, the truth, and the hope that resides in you. But God, you've transferred to us. Speak louder than anything else. God, we love you, we thank you, and it's in your son's name we pray and accept these things. Amen.